Well, it is good uh, to be with you all. And uh, I want you to know, as I have wrestled with and prayed through uh, what I was going to be sharing with you all, I'm very hopeful about what God will do. And to those in Lake Mary and Waterford, uh, I'm so glad to be with you all via video. I wish I could be with you more often in person, but I want you to know I'm always excited to hear uh, what God is doing in your churches uh, through OJ and Gary. And to the men and women in 33rd Street, I'm so thankful uh, that you are part of our church family. And I have a question that I thought we'd start by considering. How does Jesus feel about you? Like when Jesus looks at you, what happens to him emotionally? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how Jesus feels about you? Is he embarrassed by you? Is he frustrated with you? Is he disappointed? Does he shrug his shoulders and say, boys will be boys? Or does he like you? Like, would he want to hang out with you? Would he want to go and grab a water with you? (laughs) I I liked that one a lot. Um, Do you make him feel joy? Have you ever thought about how you make Jesus feel? Have you ever thought about the fact that you affect Jesus's emotions? When Jesus looks at you, does he long for you to be closer to him? Does he wish you would trust him more? How does he feel when you're hurt? or when you've been wronged? And how can we really know how Jesus feels about us? Well, in this series, we've been looking at who Jesus said he was so that we can better understand what he's offering to us. I am the bread, he offers provision. I am the light, he offers us um, uh, the light to expose things as they really are. I am the gate, he offers us safe passage into life and into the life that he had in mind when he thought us up. These are all wonderful things, but they're all rather impersonal, right? Bread, light, gate. But when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's getting very personal. All these other statements about Jesus tell us what he has to offer us, but by calling himself the good shepherd, he's actually telling us how he feels about us. Our text for today is John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed on the back of your bulletin. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is God's word. So how Jesus feels about us starts with knowing us. And I don't mean like, yeah, I think she's in one of my classes. I mean like really, really knows us. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Doug uh, McMillan is a Scottish pastor who for 12 years was an actual real life shepherd. And he wrote a book titled, The Lord, My Shepherd. 
And in this book, he tells a story about going on a train ride with his buddy who was still a shepherd. Now, he was a pastor now, but, but his friend was still a shepherd. And he said uh, a few weeks um, earlier than that train ride, his friend, the shepherd, had just sold some of his sheep. And as they were driving away, as the train was pulling out, they came across a flock of sheep that were right by the, the side of the tracks. And his friend, the shepherd, said to him, look, there are four of my lambs. Now, Doug's response was not, sure, yeah, those are your lammies. I'm sure you got that right. No, he knew the guy was telling the truth because he was once a shepherd and he knows that shepherds know their sheep. In his book, he talked about when he was a shepherd and he would go out with his flock, he would make sure he would make eye contact with each and every single one of them. And then he would go find a place to, to, to keep lookout. He would get up to a higher ground or a ridge somewhere. Um, and, and he said oftentimes a fox or a wolf would try to come and attack. He'd have to scare them away. And every time he would scare away danger, the very next thing he would do is he would go and he would make eye contact again with each of his sheep to make sure that not one of them was lost. He knew his sheep. Now, when I see sheep, they all look the same to me. Right? I have no idea how he could tell them apart, but he could because a shepherd knows his sheep. So when Jesus says, I am a good shepherd, he is telling us how he feels about us starts with knowing us, really knowing us, knowing us apart from all others, specifically knowing us that he makes eye contact with each and every one of us. Jesus knows you. Now, let's be honest. It's great that Jesus makes eye contact with each of us, but when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he isn't exactly being complimentary towards us because sheep are dumb, right? Sheep are dumb. Again, from Doug McMillan's book, a sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction continually in a way a cat or a dog never does. Even when you find a lost sheep, the lost sheep rushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it throw it to the ground, tie its forelegs and hind legs together, put it over your shoulders and carry it home. Jesus knows us, which means Jesus knows we're dumb. Think about this. Think about yourself 10 years ago. Don't you think you 10 years ago was a little ridiculous? Think about it. Like you now have a lot of wisdom that you now would like to give you then. Ten years ago, uh, we had just had our second child, and I remember sitting there and thinking, we will never be able to leave this house again, and we'll never kiss again. And, and the problem is, though, the future me, me, ten years from this moment, will look back on me now saying, we're about to have six kids. We will never leave our house again, and we will definitely never kiss again. But the me ten years from now will think, ah, to only have six kids. If we are to understand reality as it actually is, you and I, we are dependent on a perspective that is beyond our current context. We're sheep. We need a shepherd who can, who can climb up high and see beyond the horizon. We need a shepherd who knows that we're dumb. But I actually don't think Jesus thinks we're dumb. I was kind of kidding about that. I was kind of playing with that. But, but, but what I do think Jesus knows is how we were made. He knows how we were created. He was there. 
He knows that like sheep, you and I were created as dependent creatures. We said this a bunch here. The goal of the Christian life is not independence, but dependence. Because dependence gets back, gets us back to what God had in mind when he thought us up. We were designed to need him. We were designed with a need for him and for others. He never intended for us to be independent of him or relationships with each other. The lie that led to all the brokenness and all the sin and all that's gone wrong in this world was you can be like God. You don't need God. You can be independent. See, we were created dependent. That is the core of who we really are. And Jesus, the good shepherd, knows that. I think that's why we often get stuck in our recovery from addiction or habitual, uh, you know, unhealthy habits or, or besetting sins because we think the goal as a Christian is to be completely free from even the desires that lead to sinful behavior. And sometimes that happens. And when that happens, we should say, praise God. But I would say when it happens, that's the exception, not the rule. The Apostle Paul cried out in Romans chapter 7, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. What a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The goal as a Christian is to become dependent on God in the midst of whatever desires we are experiencing to trust him in his provision, trusting in Jesus Christ as the bread and as the light and as the gate, saying no to the lie that says, hey, you, you can figure this out on your own. You don't need anyone else. You don't need God. You should decide for yourself what is right or what is wrong. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Jesus knows that. He knows we're sheep. One of the most comforting verses for me is Psalm 103, 14, where it says he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. See, Jesus knows us. He knows that we were created dependent and that like sheep without a shepherd, we're lost to all kinds of damning lies and, and, and capable of falling into the most deadly of choices. We're told one time in the scriptures that Jesus looks out at a crowd and we're told that he felt compassion for them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Life is hard. And left to ourselves, it's too much. I don't know if you feel like that. I feel like that a lot. It's too much. We're dependent on someone who knows more than us. We're also dependent when it comes to our own worth. We talk about this a lot too, because I believe this is our main problem. If you dig down deep enough into any unhealthy habit or sin or addiction, our lack of worth shows up. Our lack of worth can be found. Because you and I, we cannot give ourselves worth. I know a lot of pop psychology says, you just gotta love yourself. It doesn't matter what other people think. You just have to believe in yourself because you're worth it because you're you. But what's to say that you're worth it? American Idol is getting a reboot, uh, which means you and I, we're going to get to see a lot of people who have told themselves that they can sing who can't. The, the whole first part of the show, the first couple weeks of the show thrives on these people. 
And when you and I, when we see these people fighting with the judges about their talent, you and I are not going to think, oh, wow, look what great self-esteem they have. We're not. We're going to think, oh, man, they're crazy. And where are all their friends? Why has no one told them this? Because you see, you can't say I'm a great singer. You have to be told that by an expert in singing. Kelly and I uh, finally left the house and uh, we went to see The Greatest Showman um, because everyone told me I would love it. And, um, and I think, I guess that's because I was a theater major and I love Hamilton, uh, but uh, this isn't gonna win me points, I know, um, but I just thought it was okay. I, I, didn't, I didn't love it. And, and I told someone this, I actually told a really good friend this, um, and he said to me, and he was like a dude that I didn't even think would like a musical, but he looked at me with such disdain, and he said, well, I guess you just never have felt what it's like to be on the outside. I was like, come on, man. That's the reason I didn't think it was a great film, because even though that was the intended message of the film, that every single person has value and worth, I felt like what it offered was a pretty shallow understanding of worth. The outsiders and the freaks in the film were validated because a pretty selfish man used them to make money, and then in return, they got applause from people who liked to gawk at them. And then when that selfish man turns on them, they decided to give themselves worth. But their worth is so much greater than what they could give themselves. But it was a fun movie and a catchy song, so I'll give you that. And I know I've lost some of you now, so come back. I'm going to tell you something that I loved about the film. I, I think there's a song in the film that's getting a lot of attention lately called This Is Me. And it's sung by the bearded lady. Uh, it's been nominated for an Oscar. My guess is it'll probably win. And it's a good song. It's a catchy song. When you hear it, you want to go and slay the dragon. You want to stand up to injustice and prejudice. Like, it's an empowering song. And it has some compelling lyrics. Listen to these lyrics. I'm not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, you'll, you'll, no one will love you as you are. But I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there's a place for us, for we are glorious. When the sharpest words wanna cut me down, I'm gonna send a flood, I'm gonna drown them out. I am brave, I am bruised, I am who I meant to be. This is me. Look out, cause here I come and I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. And there is something so true about these words, but it's not because I declare I'm brave. It's not because I make no apologies for who I am. We are glorious, that is truth, but we cannot bestow that glory on ourselves. We can't just say we're glorious. We have to be told that from an expert in glory. And when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, an expert in glory is telling us that we're glorious. Jesus one time uh, told a parable about a shepherd and a sheep. It's found in Luke 15. And the shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of these sheeps goes missing. And he says that the shepherd leaves the 99 behind and does whatever it takes to find that one. Do you know what the purpose of that story is? It's so that the one who is glory could say you're glorious, that you matter to God, that he's crazy about you. How does Jesus feel about you? Yes, you specifically, he thinks you have value and worth. 
Because think about it. Think about this story. If that one lamb who wandered off is sacrificed for the sake of the greater good, then every individual lamb in that group begins to feel pretty insecure. Each one of them will know that they're of little value to the shepherd. So if one wanders and gets lost, he might as well be dead because no one's coming after him. But when the shepherd pays a high price to find the one, he offers the profoundest security and worth to the many. Because the one matters, you matter. When Jesus looks at you, no matter how far you've wandered, no matter how lost you've got, when Jesus looks at you, he's overwhelmed with love for you. You are glorious to the one who is glory. That's where you can find worth that cannot be taken away. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's telling us how he feels about us. And it begins with knowing us, really knowing us, knowing that we are sheep. He knows that sheep need to be cared for so specifically because as sheep, we're so prone to wander and he hates that for us because he knows the danger that lies ahead. And so as a shepherd, he also becomes very protective of the sheep. Verses 11 through 13. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm going to make a hard a turn here tonally. And, uh, and I've been wrestling with this all week and, and how to do this right because I... I I really want to address sexual abuse and harassment specifically in the church. And I know that there is no way that I can say everything that each person in this room needs to hear. And I know I'm not gonna get it all right. Remember, I'm a sheep too. But I'm called to be a shepherd. And in fact, the word shepherd and the word pastor in the Greek is the same word, poimain. A pastor to his congregation is to be like a shepherd to his flock. So what I might say might come out wrong. I, I know something's gonna come out wrong. I know that I've got blind spots. And so I welcome discussion, especially when it comes to this topic. But I feel like I've gotta speak about it because maybe more than anything else, this affects how we think Jesus feels about us. Rachel Den Hollander is getting a lot of attention lately because of how profoundly she presented the gospel to her abuser, Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser is the former doctor for the U.S. Olympic gymnastic team, as well as Michigan State University. And just recently, he was sentenced to 175 years in prison because he abused over 150 girls. And at his sentencing, the judge allowed each of his victims to address him directly. Rachel who was the first victim to come forward about this, um, was the one who got to speak last. And if you haven't listened or read the transcript of what she said to this man, I encourage you to do so. It's powerful. And the way she talks about both the forgiveness and the justice of God is better than I've ever heard from any preacher. But something she said early in her remarks to her abuser deeply troubled me. She said that because of speaking out against sexual abuse, she lost her church. So I just, I wanna read John 10, verses 11 and 12 one more time. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and it scatters it. A good shepherd doesn't run away. We're not going to run away. Christianity Today just came out with an interview with Rachel where she expounded on what she meant when she said uh, she lost her church when she began to speak publicly about her abuse. This is what she said. Church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse because the way it is counseled is, more often than not, damaging to the victim. There's an abhorrent lack of knowledge for the damage and devastation that sexual assault brings. It is with deep regret that I say the church is, the, is one of the worst places to go to for help. That's a hard thing to say because I am a very conservative evangelical, but that is the truth. There are very, very few who have ever found true help in the church. And I know this is true because when I went to a church worker to share my own abuse story as a teenager from a church volunteer, I was met with the question, well, did you sort of like it? Summit will not be this place. And where or if we have, we need to be confronted. Our job as pastors once, is once we see a wolf, to drive the wolf away, to protect the sheep. And I hate that our culture seems to be leading in this. I hate that because we as the church should always be the first to say time's up. So if you've been abused or are being abused, especially if you're a kid or a teenager, please speak up. Tell your parents or me or one of the other pastors or some adult that you trust. We want to hear you. We want you to know that you are not alone. We want you to know that it's not, we want to be able to look in your eyes and say it's not your fault. No matter you know, whether or not you said no loud enough, whether or not you couldn't get out of the situation, whether or not you chose to wear something that you think caused it or you hung out with the wrong group of people, it is not your fault. We are all broken sexually. We have all sinned sexually in either thought or deed or both. We are all sexual sinners, but when it comes to your abuse, you have nothing to repent of. I want to say that again. We are all sexually sinful. But when it comes to your abuse, you have nothing to repent of. But if you keep silent, I know the lie that will keep playing in your head will say, it's kind of your fault. Let us obliterate that lie. Pastors like shepherds, really like all men, are called to drive the wolves away. Ephesians 5.11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. God's intent is for this to be exposed. The church should never be a safe haven for abusers to continue in their abuse, but they must be a safe place for the abused. So please let us take seriously the charge brought against the church by the brave Rachel Den Hollander and change that. Let us be a safe place for the vulnerable and the hurting. But if you're an abuser and you stay here, I'm praying that you will be exposed, that this isn't a safe place for your fruitless deeds of darkness. 
And in a church our size, there are lots that have been abused, but there are also those who have abused. And if you've abused someone, turn yourself in. In the gospel reading plan this week, we read in John 8, 32, the truth will set you free, and it really will. But listen, if you are an abuser, you have been living in so much deceit. You can't see things clearly. You need help. You cannot see the truth because you've been denying the truth. You cannot hear the truth, the only truth that can actually set you free, the truth that was so profoundly spoken by Rachel to her abuser. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna use her words. This is what she said to him. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than the forgiveness from me, although I extend that to you as well. If you have abused someone, confess and take the consequences. You cannot experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in the midst of self-justification and blame shifting and minimizing your evil. What you have done is devastating. What you have done will affect the victims and their loved ones for the rest of their lives. In fact, Jesus had very harsh words about abuse. In Luke 17, too, he said, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So if you've abused someone, Jesus says it's really bad, but not worse than the cross. We minimize the cross when we look at the cross as only being the place where grace and forgiveness is given to sinners. Because it's also the place where the wrath of a holy God against sin and injustice and abuse happens. The cross is where we see that God is always on the side of the abused, yet offers hope to the abuser. So if you have abused someone, your only hope is the cross. Now, I know abusers can be both men and women, but statistically, perpetrators are often men. So I want to talk specifically to us men. As men, we were designed with a purpose to sacrifice for others. Adam should have sacrificed himself for his wife, Eve. Now, can women sacrifice for the sake of others? Of course they can. In fact, most of the women I know live lives that are constantly sacrificing for other people, and they are exhausted. And my guess is, is because the men around them don't often sacrifice. God invites women to sacrifice, but he demands sacrifice from men. Take the very controversial passage on marriage in Ephesians 5. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God demands sacrifice from men. Boys will be boys, as Jesus defines masculinity, would be boys will be laying down their reputations and their comforts and their desires, even their own lives for the sake of others. And nowhere are we further from being men as God thought us up than in sexual abuse, assault, and harassment. This is a devastating marring of the image of God as male. In the beginning, we're told in Genesis 1.25, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Sexual abuse is the devastating marring of the image of God as male because of what it does to the image of God as female. And in more cases than we think, 
also as male. One in four women experience sexual violence. One in six men do. That's a lot of damage against the image of God. So if you have abused, you can still be manly and sacrifice for the sake of others by coming clean. And at the cross, all of us can face any earthly consequences because we know the ultimate consequence has been taken care of. Which leads me to the last thing. And then we'll get to the communion table, the only place of real hope for both the abused and the abusers. Jesus Christ says, I am the good shepherd. He's letting us know how he feels about us, that he knows us, that he cares deeply for us, that he's protective of us. In fact, he's so protective of us that he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And in the Greek, the preposition for means in place of. So Jesus says, I love the sheep so much that when the wolves come, I will become a lamb myself. I will lose my life in place of theirs. On the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22. Have you ever read that Psalm? It's worth going back to and reading because it's what Jesus was thinking about when he was dying on the cross. And in Psalm 22, it also says this, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Dogs surround me. When Jesus was on the cross, it was the wolves coming. And Jesus said, take me. There has never been a stronger affirmation of any person's value or dignity or worth than to see Jesus look into our hearts deep down into the darkest bottom of them and say, I see something so infinitely precious here that I'm willing to die for you. I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life in place of my sheep. So how does Jesus feel about you? Well, he loves you infinitely more than you could ever hope for and imagine. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus, we know that you love us. In Jesus, we see a shepherd who is a real shepherd, a shepherd who does not run away from danger, but who moves towards it. And Father, I don't, I don't know everyone's story here, but you do. You know where each of our hearts need to be shepherded by you. And so we ask that you would do that. You would be the good shepherd. You would, you would let us see that you see us, that you know everything about us and that you're crazy about us and that you also see our hurt and our pain and you feel very protective of us. So, so Jesus, continue to work in our hearts. Continue to draw us close to you. Continue to woo us to trust you more and more as our good shepherd. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.